If you have Bibles with you, please uh, open up to Hebrews 11. So before I get to my sermon, I just want to make a few comments. We, um, a few of us went away this weekend to uh, St. John, New Brunswick, and there was a, uh, the, uh, the Atlantic Vineyard Regional uh, Gathering. We're part of Vineyard Canada, and they've got regions across the nation uh, where churches gather, and, and so um, this was our gathering for the Maritimes, what they call the Atlantic Region. There are 10 churches in our region, and I think it's the first time in a, in a long time where all 10 churches had uh, representation, were, were gathered. It was great. Um, we, uh, Nadine and I went, and Greg and Debbie and Sheila uh, joined us. We had, a, we had a nice road trip together. Um, the worship was amazing. They have some very gifted uh, worship leaders in St. John, and so it was, boy, sometimes you could just lose yourself in worship, and it was, it was one of those kind of, kind of occasions. Uh, the guest speaker was David Ruiz. Um, I'm familiar with him and his, um, and especially the, the worship songs he's written. But I'd never gotten an, an opportunity to hear him speak in person before, and so thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to him. Excuse me, Ooh, that was breakfast. <laughs> um, tasted much better the first time. <laughs> Sorry, babe. Um, I love listening to David. His heart is passionate. And he has this extraordinary passion, not only for God, but for those who suffer from addiction and especially for the poor. He's just, it's just consuming to him. He's a man on fire. And I love seeing people with passion. And so it was great. We got to not only hear him speak a few times, but um, we had opportunity to uh, actually enjoy a meal together. And you know, he's just like the rest of us. He's a real guy and you know, it was, he's a dad, and it was nice just to hang out. Um, one of the things that really captured my attention as I listened to him tell these different stories of how God used him in different ways uh, and in different places, like, much like Nadine and I, his life has bounced, God's bounced him around a few different places. And, and um, what's, one of the things that struck me, along with the amazing stories of how they've reached the poor and and how they've loved and, and lived with those who suffer from the effects of poverty. Um, one of the things that captured my attention, and it really wasn't a main point of what he spoke about, but it spoke to me, was how um, at, at significant points in his life, um, you know, how, how pro- profoundly important it was that he hear the voice of God. He would be in one place, I think he was saying he was in Kansas City, and then God spoke to him and said, go to Winnipeg. It was like, I think he, I don't know if he said he was in the car, I think he was in the car and said he could hear the, the, just God speak to him. He knew it was God, it was loud, it was like, Winnipeg! And he knew that he had to go there. It was like something was just put in him. He heard the voice of God and it altered the course of his life. And God did profound things with him there. Then he... You know, God speaks to him again, and he moves to Los Angeles. I was so amazed with the, the incredible things that he did there. And so he had this great vision for establishing ministry in, in Hollywood that uh, would, would minister to all people across the spectrum, the down-and-outs and the up-and-outs, and everybody in between. And he tells a story how he began this, this ministry, and it, you know, it, things were going along, but it wasn't quite becoming what he wanted it to become. And so he shut it down and restarted. I'm thinking, man, I don't know many pastors that would have the courage to do that. It reminded me of the story of Jesus when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And people are like freaking out. They're thinking this is cannibalism. And they all went away. And Jesus let them go. <laughs> I don't know any pastor who would just do that. And then I meet David. I'm thinking, this guy's pretty cool. And so he rebooted. That's the language that he used. He went from 1.0 to 2.0 and restarted so that it would be what it was supposed to be. He said, this could have grown, it could have been good, but it wouldn't have been what God told us to do. I loved his ability to hear the voice of God and then with radical obedience do what God tells him to do. And then, just recently, he's moved back up to Kelowna. It sounds like that was hometown from him, right? And so he's got, for 11 years, he's invested into this ministry in, in Los Angeles. By all accounts, it sounds like some... Amazing God things are happening there. 
And God tells him it's time to go home. It's time to go to Kelowna. And he said, the main reason why I'm there, and he's going to do ministry. I mean, I don't think it could, he could stop doing what God's created him to do. But the main reason why he went there was he felt like it was time to take care of his mother. I'm thinking, this is an impressive guy. You know? It really is. So we, I had a great time listening to him. I loved how at significant points in his life, God spoke to him in clear and supernatural ways. And then he'd get there and he found out that, you know, that people had been praying and that God, God spoke to them. And when he showed up there, he was the answer to what God spoke to them. So, I mean, so I'm really all about hearing God's voice, right? That we have better ways of communicating with him. And how life can be exciting and dynamic and crazy wonderful. Um, if we can hear him and then simply say yes. It was powerful. It was, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Some other amazing things happened too, but we had, a, we had a great time. I want you to know that we spent time with the extended family, the extended vineyard family, and it was a really good family gathering. And, um, and so who knows, maybe we'll get, we'll get David to come here someday. That would, be, that would be kind of fun. I think you guys would really like him too. So that's just a report on the, on the conference. Last week, I began a new series of messages titled, God's Unusual Ways. I'm laying a foundation for this new series. Uh, we looked at, uh, briefly, we looked at the text of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I shared my thoughts and insights on it. We looked at the context of the verse. We looked at the implication of the verse, the application of these verses. Let's see, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow, profound statement. That's kind of like the foundation for this series. God thinks differently than we do. His ways are different than our ways. So if God's ways and our ways do not match up, who needs to change? (laughs) Scripture says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Changing is not happening on his side. We need to adjust. We need to change. Um, We talked about God boxes, how we really all have them. And that our God boxes are made up of our thoughts and our ways. And those walls are supported by our pride and our fears and our need for control. And then every once in a while, God shows up and goes, boom. (laughs) And our God box explodes. And we discover just how much his ways are not our ways. So today I want to continue the series and we're going to look at the life of Moses. That's, that's the, the plan as I go through this series. We'll look at a, a main a biblical character and look at God's unusual ways of working in their life. We're going to look at some of the unusual ways that God has worked in Moses' life. We'll look at Moses' unusual preparation. We'll look at his unusual call or his calling. And we'll look at the unusual service, the unusual ways that God had him serve. And then make some personal application. Hey, what would this mean for us? So if you open to Hebrews 11, I'm going to begin reading verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than any treasure of Egypt because he was not looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So I thank you for your word and for the power that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak your word to us today and that your word would be life to us. Do it, Lord. The name Moses is mentioned eight over eight hundred times in Scripture. 
by any account, he's a profoundly significant biblical figure. Moses is an extraordinarily well-documented uh, historical figure, uh, ancient historical figure. There's lots of info out there about Moses. Um, he's, a, he's significant to our Judeo-Christian heritage. There's so much that we can learn from, from his life. More than I could possibly cover in one sermon. We could probably look at Moses' life for weeks on end. We could spend months just looking at the different ways that God's worked in his life. But I'm not going to do that. We're just going to give a, a bit of a quick overview. So let's see what we can glean from his life today. So if you, wanted, if you personally would like to dig deeper, if after listening to this message you want to look deeper into Moses' life, um, you can look at the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So let's take a look at God's unusual ways in the life of Moses. Moses had an unusual preparation. Here's a brief timeline of Moses' backstory. His life can really be broken down into three 40-year sections. He spent the first 40 years with Pharaoh in Egypt. He spent the next 40 years of his life in exile. And then he spent the, the third 40 years of his life in the wilderness uh, leading God's people. So let's look at that first 40 years. For the first 40 years of Moses' life, he was outside of his culture and separated from his family. He was born amid persecution. If you remember the story, and what we just read briefly touches on it, Pharaoh was killing um, the Hebrew babies. He feared that a growing population um, of Hebrews would rise up, overtake the Egyptians. And so his plan was a, was a modified form of genocide. If we just kill all the male children, then they cannot rise up against us. You can look at that whole... The edict was to, was to put to death every newborn Hebrew male child. And you could find that in Exodus chapter 1. Moses was raised by his cultural enemies for most of the first 40 years of his life. Think about it. God chose this season, this 40-year period, this one-third of Moses' life to prepare him for ministry, to prepare him to be a deliverer, to prepare him for this amazing task. And he does it in an ungodly place. Amazing. Does this make sense? Does it make any reasonable, reasonable logical sense to you that if you're going to raise up a deliverer of God's people, that you would immerse him in an enemy camp. God's raising up a deliverer for Israel, and he raises him up in an Egyptian household. And not just any household, Pharaoh's household. So if you were raising up a Christian leader, would you set that person in, un in godly places or in ungodly places? Chances are we want to find a good church with a healthy Sunday school or put them in Christian education or get them the, the best training we can and try to protect him from things like idol worshipers or people who engage in occult practices. But this is what they did in Egypt. God's ways are not our ways. God's way was to set Moses in an ungodly place. And he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter as her son in Pharaoh's household. He's even named by Pharaoh's daughter, Exodus 2.10. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Very, very strange preparation. The second 40 years of his life. If the first 40 years were unusual, the second 40 years of preparation were even more unusual. Moses spent the second 40 years of his life in exile. And it's after 80 years, then God calls him. Most of us at 80 think we're done, right? We've climbed our mountains. We've slain our dragons, right? We're looking for a rocking chair and a mojito or something, right? <laughs> Is that just me? But God had a plan from the beginning. God had been preparing Moses all along. 
But could you imagine what it felt like from Moses' perspective? He's 80 years old. He's an alien in a foreign land for half his life. Now, he's in exile because he murdered an Egyptian, an Egyptian who was abusing one of the slaves. I'm assuming that you guys knew that part of the story. So this is why he's in exile. He's a fugitive. He's a murderer on the run. He's 80 years old. He's got to be thinking, man, I'm a failure. I miss God. I'm too old. My best days are behind me. It's too late. I've been rejected. If he didn't feel those things, then Moses is a much better man than I am, because that's what I've been feeling. God's ways are not our ways. He chooses the people we wouldn't choose. Let's see. Moses is going to apply to be pastor of a church. Okay, so for the first 40 years, you were hanging out with um, idol worshipers and occult practices, and then, and then you got upset with somebody, and in a, a moment of rage, even if it was justified, you killed somebody. And so you've been on the run as a fugitive for 40 years, and now you're 80, and you'd like to be the new senior pastor of our church. Hmm. <laughs> right? God chooses the people we, we wouldn't choose. God prepares people the way we wouldn't prepare them. I don't see any Bible college in the last 80 years of Moses' life. He didn't go to seminary. Dang, I don't even think he went to Sunday school. Probably his early childhood training was in more worship and idols. God had a way for Moses, but it was an unusual way. I'm not saying that those ways are bad, but God, you know, things like Sunday school or Bible college or seminary, I'm not saying those things are bad by any stretch of the imagination. But I am making the point that one of the most significant characters in Scripture didn't do any of those things. God didn't use those ways to prepare him. Of all the people on earth that God could choose to be a deliverer for his people, this is who he chooses. And this is the unusual preparation that he goes through. God's thought processes are very different than Tom's thought processes. So not only did Moses have an unusual preparation these 80 years in his life, then he gets called of God. There's a calling on his life. He has an encounter with God, and that's pretty unusual too. No one else has ever had a calling like Moses. This is, this is from uh, Exodus 3. This is the account of the burning bush. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Habor, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through, saw that through the bush, saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. Scripture is like way too polite sometimes, right? Hmm. I perceive that the bush is not burning up. I think I'll go and look at it. It's probably more like, holy cow, what is that? This is freaking me out. I've never seen fire burning and stuff not get consumed before. i got to take a closer look at this, right? I mean, what would you do? I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. The Lord says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. Let's pause for a second. Why did God have to identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Man, they had a whole bunch of gods in Egypt. They worshipped all kinds of different gods. And I bet you, in, in the occult practices that he was exposed to, he probably seen some strange things. God's showing up and he's letting him know, I'm not any god. I am the god. I'm your God. I'm the God of your, of your spiritual heritage. I'm the God of your family, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Make no mistake, I'm not those gods, I'm your God. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the land and to bring them up out of that land into a good and a spacious place, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wow. Verse 10 goes on to say, So, now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And this is Moses' response. So, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, right? 80 years old, out in the wilderness, sees a burning bush. It's not consumed by fire. He hears the audible voice of God out of this bush, calls him by name. And this voice gives him very clear, very specific direction on what he wants him to do. And this is Moses' response in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. What's he really saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm a fugitive, a loser, a failure, a murderer. I'm not good enough to represent you. Moses' long and difficult journey has left its marks on him. It's been a rough 80 years. Hey, it would have left marks on me. Probably you too. And God says to him, in verse 12, he says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I'm Moses, verse 12 is not helping me. It's not helping me. Oh, this will be the sign that after <laughs> all this is done... That will worship you on the mountain. How about a sign right now? You know, I mean, this burning bush is good, but I'm not really satisfied because otherwise I wouldn't be questioning you like Moses says. How about a sign now before I go? So in verses 13 and 14, Moses and God continue to have this dialogue. He says to He says to um, God says to to Moses, suppose I go to, to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? I think Moses is more or less kind of babbling right now. He's like freaked out that this is happening and probably not thinking real clearly. If you've had an encounter with the audible voice of God, you would know it messes with you. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you ought to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Well, I mean, I think theologically that's a profound answer. Still, if I'm Moses and his shoes, not help me too much right now. God's ways are not our ways. This is not the responses I'd be looking for. A side, just a little side note. God's giving great revelation to Moses here. Can you see? He's giving very specific, very clear revelation. And I've discovered this prophetic principle that the greater the clarity, the greater the cost. Have I shared that with you before? The greater the clarity, the greater the cost. Usually God will give very specific, very clear, detailed revelation because he knows that down the road it's going to be rough and you're going to need to hold on to this promise that I've made to you for you to get to the other side. God said, I know that I know that I know, God said. So even though this is incredibly difficult, I'm going to hold on to that promise. The greater the clarity, the greater the cost. So let's say, I'll give you an example. So let's say, for example, God told somebody, move to Prince Edward Island. Well, I mean, compared to the whole world, that's kind of specific, but you got the whole island. He didn't say where they're going on Prince Island. You could live in Summerside, you could live in Charlottetown. Yeah. You could live east to west, point to point. You could live anywhere on the island you want. Pick a county. But if God said, I want you to move to Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, there's greater clarity, and there's, and there's a greater cost there. Well, there's at least less grace. And what I mean by that is this. 
If he says, go to Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, now you can't go to anywhere on the island. God said specifically, go to Charlottetown. So now that's, that's the limitation. That's part of the cost. Now, I'll make up a mythical address. If God said, go to 123 Main Street and buy that house in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, now there's even less grace, right? Greater clarity, greater cost. Now, not only do you have to go to Prince Edward Island, you've got to go to Charlottetown, and not only that, you've got to buy this house in Main Street. That's very clear, very specific revelation. Where there's less clarity, and sometimes lack of clarity of revelation can be frustrating for us, but with the lack of clarity built into it is grace from God. Right? If I don't get the clarity of 123 Main Street, I can go anywhere in Charlottetown. If I don't get the clarity of Charlottetown, I can go anywhere on the island. Does that make sense? Moses is getting some very specific, very clear revelation. At 80 years old, Moses sees a burning bush, hears the audible voice of God Almighty, and his response is to debate and to rationalize with God. But God, you don't understand. Why would they listen to me? Moses has two concerns here. The first is Pharaoh. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And the second concern is God's people. Why should they listen to me when you tell me when I say that God sent me that you sent me to them? Why should they listen to me? God in his grace and his mercy, he gives Moses a sign. He gives him instruction. And he gives him a staff. And you can see the whole play-by-play account of that in Exodus chapter 4. And then God sends him on this mission to go and deliver the Israelites. A seemingly ridiculous mission by human standards. Exodus 3.10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. By any logical reasonable human estimation this is a suicide mission right why would this guy let these people go now you have to understand we're we're looking at the story that we know the end of it we know that it worked out Moses don't know the end of it then in the midst of it he's a fugitive from the land and God sent him back to Pharaoh's house Pharaoh's son's now on the throne the last time Moses seen them they were trying to kill him this is where God's sending him. I think maybe I would rationalize the debate with God too. And did I mention that at the time, Egypt is probably the most powerful military force that had ever existed up until that point in human history. And God's sending him to tell Pharaoh to release this massive slave labor force that's building his empire for him. Because the voice from the burning bush told me to go and do this. And oh yeah, he gave me this stick. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. People, his ways are not our ways. I'm thinking maybe from God's perspective, this is hilarious. He's thinking, oh man, I'm going to have fun with this guy. Hey, if it was up to me, I would have done it totally different. If it was up to Tom Zawacki, I would raise an army. I would want them incredibly equipped. And then we'd march in there and take over the city, or at the very least, take over the palace. Nope. God gives him a stick. And only because God, you know, he argued with God, he said, yep, your brother Aaron could go too, but God wasn't too happy about that. His ways are not our ways. Now, I'm telling you this to encourage you, because it could be that we don't see God moving in our lives as much as we'd like him to because we want him to work in ways that fit into our sense of logic and reason. And our God is not limited by our logic and our sense of reason. He often works outside of it. So on Facebook this morning, 9 o'clock this morning, John Paul Jackson posts this on Facebook, and I quote, The higher logic of God will often seem illogical to the lower logic of man. Let me say it again. I think he says it well. 
It's a, another way of saying God's ways are not our ways. But he says the higher logic of God will often seem illogical to the lower logic of man. God told Moses to do wild and crazy things. He may very well call you or me or us as a group to do the same. Your family members are going to tell you you're nuts. And you're going to look at them and say, God told me to do this. And oh yeah, he gave me this stick. (laughs) (laughs) Think about David Ruiz this weekend. He did some wild and crazy things. He did things that you'd never learn in Bible college to do. Because God told him to do it. He got inspiration to do way out of the box things. So impressed with that. Moms and dads, God may tell your children to do some wild and crazy things. And it could really be him. And they're going to need you to back them up. Because his ways are not our ways. Now, when Nadine and I moved to Clarksburg, West Virginia to plant our first church, I was, in my early 30s, I was working in New York City. I had a job in New York as a a New York City school custodian. Now, in most places in the world, this is a blue-collar job where you spend most of your time, you know, swinging a mop or emptying trash cans. Not in New York City. This This is a pretty... Tough job to get. Um, You wear a a shirt and a tie. You probably manage a million dollar budget and you got a staff of anywhere from in a smaller school, four or five people, to a larger school, maybe two or three dozen people that you manage. You make a lot of money doing it. It's a union job. I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn. This is what my parents would tell to me and my brothers get a union job. You got job security, you got benefits. So both my brothers became bus drivers and then dispatches. I became a New York City school custodian. I remember when I took the test for this job, something like 4,000 people applied. And I came in at number 162. That's how high I scored. And at 162, it took five years to get called. Because there were 1,000 positions in the New York City school system to be a school custodian. And they, nobody quits. This job is such a plum. It's so easy. You make so much money. There's so much job security. Even the principal can't tell you what to do. Then nobody quits. They die at their desk. And after, after they're dead, the next guy on the list gets a job. So here I am at 30 years old, and I finally get this position. Because I'd been the janitor. I'd been the, the fireman who ran the boilers. I worked my way up the... I did what my father told me to do. Got this great job. And I can remember the first day sitting at the desk thinking, I'm 30 years old, and I've reached the zenith of my career. (laughs) I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And it it grieved me. About three years later, God spoke. It's a long story I won't go into, but he told us to go to West Virginia to plant a church. And so... You know, I had a few hurdles there. I had to convince Nadine that this was God because I'm, let, I'm letting go of a whole lot of money. When we went to West Virginia, I was planting a church, but I was also working a secular job. And I'm making significantly less money than the people who used to work for me in the schools. I think we took something like a 60% pay cut doing that. <laughs> His ways are not our ways. So I'm not even sure Nadine was the most difficult one I had to convince. I had to talk to my father. And I'm like, Dad, I really feel like God's telling us to go to West Virginia, and it is just rocking his world. He's like, wait a minute. You did what I told you to do. You got a good city job. It's a union job. You got job security for the rest of your life. You have benefits. He's proud of his son, right? He's got, he got stuff he could brag about to his friends. He'd come and visit me at my school, and we'd sit in my office together. And he liked that his son had an office. And, and so I'm telling him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to West Virginia and plant a church. He says, can't you plant a church in Brooklyn? You know? I'm like, God, Dad, God, God told me to do this. He's like, oh, man. So now his son and his daughter-in-law and his grandchildren are leaving security. and going to follow what God told him to do. It made no logical, reasonable sense to my father. 
I'm not even sure it made logical, reasonable sense to me, but it so much sounded like him. Maybe like Moses hearing that bush, hearing that voice out of the bush. I was compelled to do it. And in hindsight, yeah, it worked. It was God. It was good. My father's okay with it now. He really was not okay with it then. It was illogical. It was unreasonable by human standards. And yet it was God. So Moses had this unusual preparation. He had this unusual calling. And then he had an unusual service. Both the preparation and the calling prepared him for service. We could go into all the interactions between Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues. All unusual for sure. I don't want to go there today in detail. But just to mention, I mean, just to give you an example of the unusual ways that God's worked in Moses' life, let me just mention some of the highlights of some of the amazing stuff. Moses returns to Egypt in Exodus 4, 4 and 5. He demands Pharaoh to release the Israelites, and by the power of God, Moses releases ten plagues over Egypt. There's this, the entire Exodus story is fascinating. Then there's the miracle at the Red Sea. Manna from heaven... While they're in the wilderness, water comes from a rock to provide, um, you know, the, the nourishment that they need. But you got to think, there are millions of people following Moses. How much water got to come from a rock for a million people? Whole lot of water, right? In the wilderness, in the desert. This is no small thing. How much water would you need for a million people for one day? I can't even fathom it. God supplies that need. Then there's the whole showdown between Moses and Korah. At one point, this guy Korah rises up, and he's not happy with Moses at all. Things are not going the way he wants them to go. So they basically have a showdown. And the earth opens up and swallows up Korah and 250 of his family and friends. That's a pretty freaky story. That's pretty unusual. We haven't even touched on Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments and the law. That would be a high watermark. In anybody's spiritual life. There's the whole dealing with Aaron and the golden calf. Moses' desire to see the glory of God. Moses gets to build the tabernacle, which is basically winds up being the model for the, the future temple. It has profound implications for our relationship with God. If you think about types and shadows. He sends the spies into Canaan. They refuse to believe God is his promise. They wound up for 40 years in the desert. And finally, God chooses Joshua to be his successor. Any one of those stories. You could go on for weeks and weeks, right? Just looking at the unusual ways God worked in any of them. So many significant biblical events. So I encourage you to do your own personal study and see what God would reveal to you. But I do want to take some time this morning to look at one of those major events in greater detail. It's the parting of the Red Sea. I could have preached on any one of these amazing things, but the Red Sea was the one that stuck out most to me. And the whole account of this is in Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, I'm going to use the message, verses 1 and 2. God spoke to Moses. It begins so many times. God doing extraordinary, amazing things in the lives of his people, begins with God communicating to them in some way or another. God spoke to Moses, Exodus 14.1. Tell the Israelites to turn around and camp at Pihetharoth between Migdal and the sea. Camp on the shore of the sea opposite Baal Saphon. Okay, so some weird sounding words in there, but this is what God's basically saying. I want you to go to this very specific location. It was if God was saying, hey, I want you to go to the corner of First Avenue and Main Street across from the beach. I want you to camp right there. Right? Remember my whole thing about the greater the clarity, the greater the cost. He's giving them very specific, detailed instructions on where to go. Verse 3 and 4, God speaks and says, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are lost, they're confused, 
The wilderness has closed in on them. And then I'll make Pharaoh's heart stubborn again, and he'll chase after them. And I'll use Pharaoh and his army to put my glory on display. Then the Egyptians will realize that I am God, and that's what happened. I'm not going to take the time to read the rest of the story now, um, but if you look at uh, if you look at Exodus 15, excuse me, um, not Exodus 15, Exodus 14, uh, verses 5 to 31, you get the rest of the detailed account of the story, where. God, when Moses takes this stick <laughs> that God gave him, and he stretches it out, and God parts the waters, and the Israelites go across on dry land. And then when Pharaoh and his army, because God has instigated it in his heart, are chasing after him, God shuts down the waters, and it drowns, and it kills Pharaoh and all his men. Do you know and God's ways are not our ways. This day was a tremendous victory for Israel and an overwhelming and devastating defeat for Egypt. No one could have imagined how it would have played out or what God's plan was. Think about it. God told the Israelites where to camp. He told them where to go. God himself put them between this rock and this hard place. They got the Red Sea on one side and the most powerful military force on the planet in hot pursuit on the other side. They're stuck in the middle. They're trapped. <laughs> God's ways are not our ways. This military force is pursuing them with bad intention. God told them to go there. God put their backs against the wall. They had no way out. God said, go this way, specifically. Go to this specific address and have the people camp there. And in that place, you'll have no way out unless I make one for you. God's ways are illogical and irrational. They do not match up with our ways. God sent them there, and if that wasn't enough, God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart so he would pursue them. If God was going to do something like this in your life, and he told you all the detail ahead of time, would you do it? I wouldn't do it. I'm telling you right now I wouldn't do it. But it's in the book. And this is exactly what he did. He could say, go to such and such a place, and in so doing, unless I, God, move, you're stuck. You're done for. Could, that, could God do that to us? I think that's exactly what the book is saying, that he could. Now, we know the end of the story. It worked out. But what about the people walking through it in real time? Not knowing that the sea would part and this great victory was theirs. How would you respond? Well, this is, if you read the story, this is how the Israelites responded. They said to Moses, weren't there enough cemeteries in Egypt? <laughs> you had to bring us out here for to be slaughtered? Now, these are people who have been slaves for a very long time. They're not warriors. They don't have weapons. They've escaped whatever they could carry. And they have this incredible military force hot on their heels. I think I'd be scared, too. I think I'd be pretty upset with Moses. I wish I could tell you, hey, I'd be the man of faith. I'd stand there unafraid. I don't know. Have you ever prayed this prayer? God, did you send me here to kill me? <laughs> I prayed that prayer. These people were terrified. They cried out to, Mo to God and they turned on Moses. <laughs> How would you like to be the leader of this group? How would you like to be in Moses' shoes right now? God said to go, and you went. God said to deliver the people, you did. A miracle, right? Now they're out. <laughs> All these people are upset with you. What does it feel like to have a million plus people angry at you? I don't know. It's got to be pretty tough. It can't be good. These are the people he's trying to lead. 
Now get this. Don't miss this point. It wasn't their rebellion. It wasn't their sin. It wasn't their disobedience that got them in these circumstances. It was nothing that they did wrong that got them between the Red Sea and this army that's pursuing them. They did nothing bad. Don't miss the point that in this place, this impossible place, in these impossible circumstances, in that ridiculous, illogical, irrational place, a place that no one would plan or strategize or choose to be in, in that place, and they're there because they've obeyed God. It was their obedience, not their disobedience that got them there. And in that place, God did a God-sized thing. God did what only God could do. God separated the seas for the Israelites and then swallowed Pharaoh and his entire army with that very same sea. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you and me? What does it mean to follow a God whose ways are not our ways? Whose thoughts are not our thoughts? I want to follow God. I want to follow God. I've been a Christian for 37 years. I want to follow him as best as I know how. There are times he's told Nadine and I to do some pretty strange things. And people haven't always been happy about it. It hasn't always made sense to my natural, logical, rational human mind. It hasn't always been reasonable by human standards. But even so, it was really him. It was really God. He may tell us to do some strange things. He may actually offend us. Have you ever been offended by God? I have. I think considering these circumstances that Moses is in, offense might be too light a word. The Israelites weren't simply offended with Moses. They were frightened. They were furious. I think they wanted to kill him. I can hear them now. Can't we just kill this guy? Can't we just get rid of him? I can't believe we actually followed this fool. I told you this wasn't going to work out. What if God offends Charlottetown Community Church? What if he tells us to do something ridiculous? What if he tells you to do something you don't want to do? I'm just trying to prepare our hearts to follow him. Wherever he may lead. I want to follow him no matter what. Even if it costs me everything. And so far I have. And it has cost us repeatedly. And I'll tell you what. I'll do it again if he asks. What about you? What if God led us in directions that look ridiculous? Even impossible. What if it really was him? What if he orchestrated impossible circumstances in us as a church or in your personal life so that when everything works out, he's the only one who gets the credit? He's the only one who gets the glory. I mean, could anyone take credit for this deliverance of Israel? The parting of the seas or the victory over the Egyptian army? Can anybody take credit for that? Maybe Moses could have gotten a taste of it. But hey man, just minutes before, they were ready to kill him. And you know what? You could put a stick out there all day long and shout out the water. (laughs) But unless God parts the sea, you're done for, right? It wasn't about Moses. It was about God. It was the God who gave him the stick that parted the waters. It wasn't the stick. It wasn't like Moses opened the booth after, after that and said, here, come and buy a magic stick. It was God. <clears throat> so what do we do? What's the practical application? I think two things. I think number one is that we've got to hear God. You have to actually hear him. This is why I've invested so much time into relationships. 
and into our relationship with God. And now I'm hearing him in the spiritual gifts workshop. And when we, we've heard him, we need to understand him accurately. So I ask you, pray for us as a church. Pray for me as your pastor. Pray for our elders. Because these are good people. I know them. They love you and they love God. We need to hear God. We need to hear him. And then we need to, after having heard him, that's the first thing we need. The second thing we need to do is we need to say yes. We need to say yes to whatever he tells us to do. We need a willingness to not only hear his ways, but a willingness to do his ways. I'm concerned that the church, not Charlottetown Community Church, but the whole church, that we've been so conditioned to thinking the way the world thinks, that when God speaks his ways to us, we judge it as ridiculous and instantly reject it. We are so used to our human way of thinking that when he actually speaks, we don't think it's him. Because it's not our ways. And it's not our thoughts. We don't get to see the water's part until you're at the water's edge and the army's pursuing you. Do you understand that? It wasn't like God said, go to this place because I've already opened the waters for you. He said, go to this place and then after that, he opened the waters. That's the way of faith. That's the path of trust. So we need, the second thing we need to do is say yes. Having heard clearly, we need to say yes. We need to say yes to the wild and crazy things that God says. Sometimes his ways offend our hearts and they reveal our minds. They don't seem, they don't seem right to us, but it's still him. Not only do we need to say yes to him, we need to have a life that says yes to him again and again and again. It's one of the things that so impressed me with David Ruiz this weekend. He talked about him saying yes and the impact of his yes on his life and the lives of those around him. Moses said yes and it impacted his life and impacted the lives of many other people around him. I'd like to have impact like that. So let's pray. Hmm. Lord, we agree with your word that your ways are not our ways. That your ways are higher than our ways. And Lord, I pray that you would put us in a posture where we would not only live as reasonable, as respectable, as healthy members of society, but that we would adhere to something higher than that that we would yield to something higher than our respectability, than our reputation, than our logic. And that would be you. We give you permission. Hmm. I give you permission in my life to do illogical and irreasonable things. You can pray that if you feel the same way. But I do ask you to come and be God in my life. Lord, I ask you to do God-sized things in my life. I ask that you would speak and that we would hear you when you speak. And that we'd understand you when you speak. And not only that, that, we would, that our hearts would be yielded to say yes to you when you speak. Even if it's unusual. Do it, Lord. Lord, do you teach us baby steps until we learn to walk and then fly? Or or do you you just throw us off a cliff and speak fly over us and we fly? I, I don't know which way it works. But I ask that you would put to death in us today a contentment with the status quo. Put to death within us a contentment with an intellectual and academic faith only. Put to death in us that which places logic and reason in our minds higher than your thoughts and your ways. Put that to death in us. 
We want to be a people of faith, who walk by faith, who live by the trust that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we would be satisfied with you and with you only. Lord, I pray that you would inspire and encourage us with the life of Moses. We agree that your thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. And we choose today to submit to your ways. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Once again, I had gotten some revelation before church today. God gave me a couple of prophetic words I just want to share with you guys. And it's more, um, it's more general for us as a group. I, I, I had a sense of what he said, but I didn't specifically know for who. So I'm throwing it out there, and if this feels like you, then this one's for you. Um, anybody remember the old car radios? They had the dial, right? And you had to, you know, you had to kind of dial the radio in until it was, the station was clear. And sometimes, you know, if you're a little bit too far to the right or to the left, all you got was static. And I felt like there were some of us today that that's what it's like when we're trying to hear the voice of God. Um, we, we turn the dial a little bit one way, it's a little statically, and we go the other way and static until eventually we find that sweet spot. I think that's what God's doing with you right now. I think he has his hand on you like we would put our hand on the dial, and he's dialing you into the sweet spot. And it's so that he can speak <laughs> his unusual ways into your life, and that you could hear him clearer and with greater clarity. So just be encouraged by that. His hand is on you. Matter of fact, the picture I seen was God's hand was on people's heads. And I think what he was doing was tuning your way of thinking so that you could understand his ways or hear him more clearly. The other thing I seen was um, a little bit different than that. It was a modern radio. Like in most of our cars today, you just push a button and you just go right to the station, right? There's no more dialing in. You just hit a button. And a lot of us have pre-programmed um, uh, stations um, in our cars. And so I seen that God, God doing that for different people. It wasn't like there was any tuning in that had to happen. Um, there was a, he was going to push a button. <laughs> There's something he's going to put his finger on, and it's going to push your button, and what it's going to do, it's going to play a whole new song. And this was the sense I had about the song. You know, you know almost every movie that we have, there's, a, there's background music. There's a theme music to what's going on, right? I mean, everybody remember Jaws? As soon as you, you heard the music go, dun, 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 dun. It's like, the shark is coming! Don't go in the water. Wouldn't it be nice if you had some theme music to your life, right? Don't open the door. The killer's behind the door. You're like, why is she opening the door? She's going to run through the woods and trip. They always trip, right? <laughs> That's not any part of the revelation. That's just me being silly. But what I did see is God changing the music. It's like there's, there's a theme song to your life. There's background music to your life, and the music's about to change. And I think it's going to represent significant change. The touch of God probably pushing some button in your life is going to put... A whole new soundtrack. That's the word I'm looking for. A whole new soundtrack to your life. And the scene's going to change. And I think it feels like springtime. You know, it's different out there today. And so I think there's going to be a new theme song to your life. Things are going to significantly change because God's going to push um, a button in your life. I think it's a good thing. At first it may feel like it's just your button being pushed, but you're going to realize it's going to represent significant change in how your life is playing out. The story's about to shift. That makes sense? And then the third thing I sense, and again, I think this can apply to anybody who wants it. I feel like this, there is a season, there's a richness in the season right now for personal worship. So if you're a musician, I want to encourage you, you know, to dust it off and tune it up and, um, and worship him with your instrument. I think you're going to find life there right now. If you're not a musician then I encourage you to worship him privately. Put your earbuds in and find your favorite worship songs and just sit with him for a while. Or go walk. Go find a beautiful place to walk and listen to the music. And I think you're going to meet, God's going to meet you in that place. I think there's life, a lot of spiritual life right now. I think always, but right now specifically, I think there's life for you in personal worship. Matter of fact, if you feel like you've been in a dry spiritual place, it's been hard to hear God, it's been hard to connect with Him, my encouragement to you is get into a time 
of personal worship, whatever that looks like for you. And I have a really strong sense that he's going to meet you um, in that place. And so, Lord, I thank you. I ask, Lord, that you would bless whoever um, these words apply to. Encourage uh, your people today and, and lead us in your ways. Amen? Amen? You guys have an awesome day. Enjoy the sunshine out there.